Well, hello everybody. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the uh, Too Bread for You podcast. And boy, do I have a real treat for you this time. In this conversation episode, I was joined by Dr. Florence Clayberg. Um, she is a computational neuroscience. And let me tell you folks, this one is all science. In the past, we've done, you know, a mix of science and then talked about some science communication stuff or science and society stuff. This was all science and some hard brain science. So get ready. Uh, Florence was a really great person to talk with. She was super enthusiastic, easy to talk to. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, like I said, she does computational neuroscience. So this is like really you know, mathematical models of the brain or computer models rather of the brain. Um, her work focused a lot on synapses. So synapses are the little spaces uh, that neurons, you know, send signals, neurotransmitters through, which then, you know, make the next one fire the electrical impulse or not. Um, and so it was really looking at like mapping all of these connections in the brain, all of these synaptic connections in the brain. And we kind of, one of her main things was really about how these things change, these connections, you know, these sort of, if you think about it like as a circuit, these neural circuits um, don't remain the same over time in the brain, which is kind of a, a bit counterintuitive when you think about the brain storing information. How does it store a memory in these circuit pathways if the circuit pathways are always changing. So like what is then then we 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 ask the question, what is a memory if it's not like a stable section of neurons that are firing and encoding that information? This led into talking about artificial intelligence, um, you know, mapping the brain, mapping the synapses, mapping the neural networks. Obviously there's some artificial intelligence stuff there. Um, it also went into a lot about epilepsy. And so this was when we were discussing the way in which neurons regulate their activity. So the way in which these synapses um, sort of remain in a stable network where they're not all firing at once. You know, how, what are some of the mechanisms behind that? Because when they do sort of, if you want to call it overactive, um, that's how you get epilepsy. So there was a lot in this conversation, but uh, I hope you enjoy it. I really, really enjoyed talking to her. Um, like I said, super enthusiastic, really great to talk to, really nice person, super smart. She had a lot to say. Uh, we didn't even touch on half of the stuff that I'm sure we could have, so hopefully we can do it again. Um, I'll leave it there. Enjoy this conversation with Dr. Florence Clayberg. We'll have the freak motif bring us in, as per usual. And then it's on to my conversation with Florence. Enjoy. Brad, uh, thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much for doing the show. Thanks for being here. Um, I'm excited to be back at the Frankfurt Institute of Advanced Sciences. Studies. Uh, studies, <laughs> right. I always get that one wrong. Um, and actually, this is exciting because you're a neuroscientist by training, yes. Um, and I find that when people, people that are interested in the sciences, it's usually space and the brain. <laughs> this is what people are so, so interested in. So now we have someone who can talk to us about the brain. And 
I was reading some of the papers that you sent along to me to sort of get a bit of background on what it is you do. And I mean, you know, my wife does neuroscience as well. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned about neuroscience is there's a lot of different aspects. Like she does behavioral neuroscience. There's like chemical things going on in the brain. There's structural, the different brain regions. Yes. From my understanding, what it is that you're doing is looking at the circuitry. So the electrical circuitry of the brain. So maybe you could start there and give us a... What is the electrical circuitry of the brain? Synapses are involved, yes? Neurons? Yes, yes exactly. So um, um, what I'm interested in um, is uh, computational neuroscience. So that's mm-hmm. actually a field in neuroscience where uh, people use either advanced data analyses or uh, make models of the brain uh, by using computer programs. Right. And the, that the latter is something that I've, I've been working on more recently. Um, and um, in a lot of cases, if you do an experiment, you, um, so you, you set up the experiment, you record the data, and then you, you analyze this, and you, take some, you make some conclusions about what you've, you've seen. Um, but there's always kind of a, a black box problem involved in the experiment, because you cannot control everything uh, in the experiment. You can't control every uh, parameter. Uh, but if you create a model on a computer of the brain, mm-hmm. you can set all the parameters to whatever you want, and you know what they are. And uh, this creates kind of a unique opportunity for finding out what does what in a brain, mm-hmm. what does what in an electrical circuit of the brain. Um, so that's one reason why making a model of the brain or parts of the brain is very uh, interesting opportunity for understanding what's going on. Mm-hmm. Things that perhaps cannot be tested yet with experiments or uh, parts uh, of, of the brain circuitry that you would like to see um, test it next, but you would want to look at some specific aspects, and in order to guide or to to propose new experiments, you, you could do first some modeling to look at what would be feasible, what would be interesting to look at, and already maybe cross out some things that are not possible or not very interesting. Right, right. So when you're making a model of the brain, I mean, this is an, we know it's an incredibly complex organ right like yeah all of these circuits and everything like what are we talking like we're talking like billions of neurons or something correct yeah so how do you start then building a model that that you could be interested or confident is yeah. sort of reliable yeah that's a very good question and it's not easy um <laughs> <laughs> i don't doubt it's, it <laughs> it's um you you can't model yet the entire brain mm-hmm. um uh, both based on what we know about the brain, like our knowledge is still not complete. We don't know every single thing about the human brain yet. And the other part is the computational capacity you would need to actually implement this model, to run it for long enough uh, and so on. So there are limitations in what you can do. Um, And so you have to take a part or piece of this this brain, uh, some brain region perhaps, uh, some type of cells that you would like to look at and simplify this very much and then create the model. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the ideal case, you should have a model, and before you run it, you should already know what you would want to see comes out of this model. Mm. Um, so have it, like an know, expectation that if that doesn't yeah. happen, then you can either know that your hypothesis is wrong or that the model's not functioning exactly, properly? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So it would be hypothesis-driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also do exploratory, but I find myself that if you do a hypothesis-driven research, uh, it's uh, easier to really see what's going on. What you get really something concrete mm-hmm. that comes out of the research. You can say, well, this is true, yes or no. Um, right. 
while if you do exploratory research in modeling, then you can run things forever and you don't really know what it means. Right, because I guess mm. this is the thing with with any sort of modeling, whether it's of the brain or climate or what you know, anything that modeling is used as, you kind of have to mm -hmm. have the input characteristics as close to reality as possible. So you kind of, yeah. like you're saying, you have to have an idea of what to expect or how to, yes. right, okay, that makes... That makes a lot of sense. Because, um, yeah, that was even in some of the papers that you had sent along to me in the book mm -hmm. chapter. Um, yes. It sounded like you that's exactly it. You guys sort of had this expectation or I'm not sure you can correct me. You know, I'm usually wrong about most things. So <laughs> um, <laughs> that, you know, like you could see the synapses firing or a way in which they were firing. And mm -hmm. then it was a matter of, okay, what modeling conditions would would produce that? So exactly. you could take a picture of the brain, say, or like a picture of the firing of the brain. Mm -hmm. Picture is the wrong word, obviously, uh, but you didn't know what you know combinations of neurons or synapses were firing that produced that signal. Exactly. And so mm -hmm. the model was then trying to reproduce that signal, but because you made the model, you knew. What went in? Is that? Yeah, yeah that, that's more or less it. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. so yeah, like trying to understand in, in the case of the book chapter, like what, um, how can you get these, these uh, bi directional connections between neurons? Mm -hmm. uh, this is something that has been observed in the brain. It uh, comes out of some experiments. And then the, the way these models are used is kind of, you can see it maybe from an engineering perspective. Okay, we have, you know, we have point A, we want to get to point B somehow. Mm -hmm. um, what if it's this kind of mechanism? And then you put that in in a model, and then you, you do get the same thing. You're like, okay, it could be this. Mm. Of course, it could be something else completely that right. we don't know about, that we couldn't even conceive right now. <laughs> right. Um, that's the trick with these models. You can never say like 100%, like, oh, this is exactly what is happening, mm -hmm. unless you can really show that nothing else is possible. Right. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the downside of these, this kind of modeling. But... Um, uh, just to get back to the electrical circuit right. you, you yeah, mentioned yeah. earlier that uh, I wanted to explain. So the, the models I've been working on with my colleagues, they are models of the brain that uh, look at the circuit level. So mm -hmm. the, the network of neurons in the brain that are connected to each other by synapses. Right. Uh, and how this, this, these networks function, what, what can they do, what kind of activity do they have? And uh, importantly, what is the plasticity happening in these networks? And plasticity being like that they can change the, the route that they're using or something? Uh, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. plasticity um, is something like, you know, you can change something in, in right. the connections between the neurons uh, or in the neurons themselves that would alter uh, how they respond to input, for example. Right, right. Uh, so one very well-known uh, type is synaptic plasticity. So you have synapses between the neurons. It's how they transmit signals, one of the ways they do. Mm -hmm. Uh, and these synapses can become stronger or weaker over time uh, due to various factors. could be due to the activity happening in uh, the presynaptic neuron, could be due to the activity in the postsynaptic neuron, could happen over time to, due to homeostatic effects mm -hmm. um, or limitations of resources inside the synapses that use the same resources from nearby synapses and so on. So... There are many different types of plasticity have been shown in experiments. Mm -hmm. And by using these circuit-level models, we try to implement simplified versions of these plasticity rules 
and try to understand what they do in these networks mm-hmm. and uh, what are the limitations of these rules or uh, what is something that maybe doesn't work well and maybe we need some extra research, some extra um, experiments that are done on these synapses and how can these networks of neurons learn something, how can they retain something and how can they create memory. Uh, these right. are very big questions actually that are all related to uh, trying to understand this electrical circuit. Because... Yeah, so like when you're learning an activity or when your brain is, I guess, encoding and like storing a memory, mm-hmm. that's going to require that the synapses are changing or doing different exactly. things. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So you, so I guess your brain is constantly, these synapses are constantly changing. Yeah, I was about to get to that. So your, your brain right now mm-hmm. is different from now. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> it's, it's yeah. so weird to think about that my brain is changing you know, yeah. like it just, oh, it's one of those, you know, sort of trippy, <laughs> mind-blowing things. But yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's constantly changing. and uh, But despite the fact that it's constantly changing, there is also some um, uh, consistency over time. We can have a certain memory, for example, of uh, yesterday I went to a restaurant, had a salad. And then the next day you still have this memory. Right, like, oh yeah, two days away. ago I went to have, to have that salad. So how can these memories be persistent at the same time while we also know that there are constant changes happening in this circuit due to new memories coming in, new memories being formed all the time. Uh, I mean, you forget some things, but you also learn a lot of new things. And that all of that combined with the fact that at the, the synapse level, for example, the neuron level, there are a lot of molecules that have very limited lifetimes and that are constantly turned over. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you've studied biology, so mm-hmm. you, you, you understand this, right? It's, yeah. They're constantly being replaced, and how can you retain some stable memory in a, a right. neural network if you constantly have to, to you know, replace all these molecules the right way, in the right places? Uh, it's really not understood how this can really be maintained so well. Um, and then, of course, there's the question of, like, really, what is the memory? Yeah. You don't even know what the memory is. I, t- I was going to ask. I wasn't <laughs> sure if that was going to sound, like, too silly or too... But no, it is. No, it's a, not at it's all. a deep question, right? Like, what is it What is it in the brain? Is it just the, the you know, network of circuits? I mean, that can't be the whole picture because we know mm. now that these are changing. So Yeah, they are constantly changing. Um, there are synapses that are more stable over time compared to other synapses. So there's mm-hmm. like a subset of synapses. If you look at some like brain region, for example, uh, bowel cortex. So that's uh, uh, the cortex in the in the mouse where you know the, the whiskers are sti- uh, whisker information comes in. Okay. Um, and if you look at the distributions of synapses in there, you can see that there are some that are very uh, stable over time. Usually the bigger ones. And um, you see a lot of them that like appear and disappear uh, over time. Mm-hmm. So these, these synapses and these, uh, uh, they're not very um, stable, actually, if you look at longer time scales. Uh, one of the things that experimenters look at uh, for these synapses is what they call spine. And the spine is kind of like a protrusion uh, on the membrane uh, of, of, um, of a dendrite. Of mm-hmm. a neuron, so that's like kind of like what, where the neuron receives the synapses from other neurons. Mm-hmm. And these spines, you can actually image them uh, using very sophisticated um, uh, uh, microscopic methods. Yeah. And you can then image them over time, like days and days and days. Mm. You can see, oh, this spine, was it there? Is it gone now? Um, and so those are changing too. Those are changing as well. Um, and uh, they're also changing a size dependent matter, man- a manner, so that some. 
spines, just the bigger spines, for example, have larger fluctuations or smaller fluctuations, depending on where you are in the brain. So it's really, it's a very complex picture uh, with a lot of, yeah, there seems to be some kind of interplay between uh, consistency and transiency, which we don't understand. And we need to find out how this works, how this can be uh, maintained over time and where the memory is encoded. Because there are experiments that have shown that if you, for example, uh, rodents learn some motor task mm -hmm. over time uh, and you image these spines that I just mentioned and you, s you look at the spines, you see new spines appearing when the animal has learned the task. And you're like, oh, okay, you know, this is probably some sign of the new memory being formed. Um, you can use a laser to specifically target and remove those spines that have just appeared, <laughs> and the animal has forgotten the motor task. That was published so a couple of years ago. you can erase them. You can erase the memory. Specifically erase them, that memory. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Which is... Uh, that's, kind of, that's kind of creepy. <laughs> yeah, it's creepy. Yeah, yeah. It, but it's interesting because that is at least one kind of concrete way in which yeah, we can yeah, see, yeah. like, okay, the memory is there, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And uh, this structure is involved. At least this structure is involved. That's what in some way. Yeah, obviously all the structures involved as well. But yeah, yeah. So that's really uh, where we're at, you know, right now in understanding memory um, at the circuit level. I mean, there are many other approaches. There's like the more the psychological approach where you let people, for example, do memory tasks mm -hmm. and look at the brain activity. So I'm not saying at all that this is the complete picture. But yeah. It, we're trying to understand this at the circuit level. Right, that's a, that's a that's a goal. So I mean, again, from like the circuit level, seems like you know, understanding that there's a lot of different things going on, but just the amount, like to take a snapshot of the electrical activity that is happening in a brain at any moment. Yes. And then trying to extrapolate some kind of sense out of that you mentioned the computing power that's necessary. Like that must be, this must be, you know, computing power increases mm. all the time. So it's probably a rapidly advancing field. Mm. What you couldn't do a year ago, you can, yeah, you yeah. can start to look at now. Yeah. At some point we might, might be able to really simulate, you know, nearly the whole brain or everything that we know at that point from mm -hmm. experiments that we actually put in simulation. Um, but then you can also ask yourself, what is the point of that? Mm -hmm. um, you would really have to ask the really good questions um, in order to obtain information from that. I mean, you can do it. You can use it as kind of an experimental brain that you can't um, use uh, right now. For example, you know, human patients, you can't just, <laughs> you know, just take their brain and, and chop it up like the way right. you want to. Of course, right, it, right. You use mostly non-invasive methods. Um, and such a hugely you know, detailed computational model would permit such experiments because you could just change the parameters in the, in the model. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I do personally like the approach of having a more simple model and understanding basic principles mm -hmm. uh, of that, that are happening or that could happen in the brain from these, these simple models. That, that's the type of model I've been working on in the past. So um, for example, um, one of the, the, the works I, I showed you that talked about the uh, inhibitory plasticity in the synapses. Mm -hmm. Now, before I go into that, I have to explain what uh, inhibition is in the brain. Yeah, so please do, please do. <laughs> so you have uh, uh, a lot of different cell types in the brain. There are a lot of supportive cell types next to the actual neurons that transmit these electrical signals. Uh, but within the neuron population, we have uh, neurons that can um, 
excite the next neuron that they are connecting to, which, and they're basically depolarizing the membrane mm -hmm. of the postsynaptic neuron. Um, and this is called an excitatory neuron. Mm -hmm. And the synapse of an excitatory neuron releases neurotransmitter that is then um, caught by the uh, transmembrane molecules, transmembrane proteins of the receiving neuron in such a way that these, um, these molecules uh, le let ions enter the neuron that depolarize mm -hmm. the potential over the membrane of that neuron. And that creates and that, that creates sort of spike. Yeah, yeah, the electrical... Yeah, impulse or exactly. whatever you want. So yeah. it, it excites the next neuron. It's quite you know intuitive. Mm -hmm. um, and inhibitory neurons, on the other hand, they have synapses that release a different type of neurotransmitter, different type of chemical um, that leads to hyperpolarization mm -hmm. uh, of the postsynaptic neuron, um, usually through a chloride uh, entry into the cell. And this. Um, um, so th these two different cell types uh, exist. And there are also some that can kind of change their type or change their effect depending on circumstances or depending on development of the animal. But let's just say that for simplicity, we have these main two types mm -hmm. of which um, roughly, uh, for example, in the cortex, I'd say roughly like 20% of those would be inhibitory and 8% would be excitatory neurons. Okay. And yeah. the, the inhibitory ones, just, is, just to clarify, they're preventing the next neuron from firing? Uh, so they could. Okay. They are actually, so it's basically, you have a balance between these two inputs. So uh, you can have some neuron, some postsynaptic neuron, we'd say, like receiving a lot of different synapses. And it receives synapses from excitatory neurons and it receives synapses from uh, inputs from inhibitory neurons. Uh -huh. And depending on what, how strong these synapses are or what the activity of those presynaptic neurons is at any time, that neuron would be able to spike or mm. not. Okay. So if the inhibition happens to be particularly strong at some point, then it doesn't matter how strong the excitation is, it, maybe it's, it just cannot uh, make the neuron uh, spike anymore. because Cannot make it fire. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, okay. um, but if the, suddenly the inhibitory neurons are silenced, maybe through some, something happening upstream in the circuit, mm -hmm. um, then suddenly the excitation can... Um, activate this neuron and then it becomes active. So this kind of gating uh, function is one of the proposed roles of inhibition uh, in, in, uh, in the brain. Right. So, so it's a way of controlling which one fires, which one doesn't, and at which time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And does, it, does it yeah. also uh, control then like the strength of the firing? Yes, exactly. So, there's okay. also, uh, there's so also, it can like yeah. dampen the sort of firing of the neuron or shut it off completely or yes. let it go through. Okay, okay. That makes yeah. sense. It's like a control mechanism of how these things fire on and off. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, uh, there are, of course, the picture is much more complex than this. Of course, it would always. be much too easy <laughs> to just say that it would just be some kind of gating. Um, there are many different types of interneurons in the brain. Uh, that can be characterized depending on their morphology or their, uh, the, their um, biomarkers or like peptides that they have um, and uh, also the locations that they have in, in different parts of the brain. And in fact, this is one of the biggest um, fronts right now in neuroscience research, not just computational neuroscience, neuroscience in general. People trying to understand uh, what, why do we have all these different subtypes of in inhibitory neurons mm -hmm. and uh, what do they do and uh, why are they even interconnected? So in inhibition, inhibiting inhibition. Um, mm -hmm. 
um, so there are, you know, there are already propositions coming that you know some of these neurons might be, be forming more like gating functions. Other um, are maybe more important for maintaining a healthy activity levels in the brain okay. and by making sure that the excitatory neurons don't fire too much, um, so that you get an overactive brain, um, and uh, and so on. So it's really. Yeah, there's a huge potential for, for discovery here. Papers coming out from really, like, you know, big groups right now are looking into this. Um, and one of the techniques that's being used in experiments is uh, optogenetics. So uh, the neurons express a type of uh, ion channel that can be activated by light, shining light. Uh, right, I've heard of this. Yeah, yeah. so... And they're doing this now for, with specific uh, inhibitory neuron subtypes. So they can say, like, okay, we turn this one, this cell type we turn off, this one we turn on, and we see uh, what happens. What happens, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, wow. So it's, it's really quite uh, advanced what's happening right now. Um, but what, yeah, what I looked at before was uh, I, I had a simple model um, in which I implemented plasticity in synapses, uh, belonging to both excitatory and inhibitory neurons. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to see what kind of plasticity rule would allow a balance between excitation and inhibition to occur in this neuron, to prevent it from being overactive, for example. Ah, okay. So what, what conditions would lead to, yeah, a sort of... Yes, exactly. ...regulatory, like a nice balance? Because what would an overactive brain be? Like, would well, that it just would, be for example, be epileptic. Okay, um, there you go. Uh, by overactive, uh, of course, this is a you know not not an official term, but right. um, uh, epilepsy is um, uh, so a very serious disease. About one percent of the world population suffer in some way or another from epileptic seizures. Oh wow! Yeah, it's quite uh, yeah. I didn't realize it was that that high. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's really quite high, and uh, epilepsy is uh, characterized so by seizures, and mm -hmm. these are kind of waves of activity happening in the brain. Um, of a path pathological nature, mm -hmm. and the neurons uh, during the seizure they can't function properly. They can't do what they would otherwise be doing. So, um, if the entire brain, for example, is involved, then you're unconscious. Right. Um, and but also you can also have overactive uh, uh, activity. Uh, sorry, overactive neurons or, or seizures in subparts of the brain. Mm -hmm. um, so it doesn't have to be the whole brain that's involved. But um, one of the theories behind like what could cause what could pot potentially cause uh, epileptic seizures or such pathological activity is an um, a uh, unbalancing of this uh, excitation inhibition so that maybe the inhibition is too weak or suddenly the excitation is too strong um, uh, the balance breaks down and then these excitatory neurons start to become overactive and that's the nature of this excitation you get one neuron that's super active and it starts to activate these other neurons that are also excitatory, mm -hmm. then, you know, it, it can grow out of control right. very quickly unless the inhibition can stop that, um, which maybe in some cases it can't because these, uh, these neurons could be perhaps, uh, um, the activity could be very weak or the synapses have maybe decayed or uh, we don't really understand actually what is happening there, but it's uh, it's one of the the theories it's much too easy to just assume that inhibition is uh, actually just weak and therefore you get seizures mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um 
but it's it's one it's one of the elements that is somehow involved in in this this change in its balance of excitation and inhibition. Right. Um, so that's why it's important to understand how can you maintain this balance uh, in the brain, uh, what causes this to to you know go wrong. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, one of the other things that I should mention here, which is very important, is that. Um, I just spoke of activity and overactive neurons and so on. And we have, of course, also plasticity mm -hmm. in synapses. Um, now, what kind of plasticity this is depends on the synapse type. But there is one type of plasticity, um, uh, which is called spike timing dependent plasticity. Mm -hmm. And it's a type of uh, change in the synapse that occurs when... Um, the uh, presynaptic and the postsynaptic neuron are active around the same time. Okay. Uh, and this could be uh, like they could be 10 milliseconds later or 50 milliseconds later, and there would be some change in the synapse. Um, and there uh, is actually quite a lot of evidence for one of these uh, spike timing dependent plasticity rules that shows that uh, the um, um, presynaptic neuron, if it's active and the postsynaptic neuron is active just a little bit later, then the synapse would increase in strength. Okay, so it has like an amplifying effect. Exactly. On, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's okay. it's uh, it's um, it rewards causality, mm -hmm. and then it will, uh, if it's an excitatory synapse, it will also increase this causality because once the synapse is stronger, it's you will be much more likely again in a scenario where you have a presynaptic spike and then again a postsynaptic spike right after it. Right. So down the line of the circuit, it, it could amplify It could amplify way. and it could grow out of control. Right. So it's not just activity, it's also the plasticity that play, can play a big role into, um, you know, over, over activity in, in the network of neurons. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, for this reason, um, there have been people trying to model this actually using computational models to say like, okay, well, you know, we know that this plasticity rule exists, but if we put it in, uh, we just get out of control activity, which is like meaningless. Right. Uh, what do we do against that? How does the brain solve this problem? Because <laughs> this is clearly not happening all the time. And um, and one of the answers that, that we think is, is going on is that there is a homeostatic effects happening in the brain, both at the synapse level and at the neuron level, mm -hmm. that prevents uh, these, um, at least in, in you know non-pathological cases, would prevent this kind of crazy activity. Um, and one of them, for example, is called um, intrinsic uh, plasticity. And in this case, uh, a neuron... Ha so a neuron has a certain spiking threshold. Mm -hmm. um, if you give this neuron... Like, if you depolarize this neuron enough, then it will spike. But if you stay just below this threshold, uh, it will just, you know, it will just not spike. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been shown that neurons can actually adapt their threshold over time, if they receive, for example, too much input, too many spikes, they can actually uh, make their spiking threshold higher by changing the composition of uh, ion channels uh, and transmembrane proteins uh, in their membrane. So it'd be like kind of like overworking it. Like if you overwork it, it, it takes more to make it fire. Exactly. Right, okay. And uh, conversely also, if you decrease activity, then uh, the neuron tries to, to adapt to that to, uh, by uh, decreasing the, the threshold, uh, right. making okay. it easier to spike. So there are mechanisms like that that the brain has somehow implemented that uh, work to, to prevent such uh, pathological activity from happening. And another one happens, uh, uh, we think, at the synapse level, where um, uh, the synapses themselves uh, 
become stronger or weaker if the network activity is very high or very low for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, so there are all sorts of mechanisms that can can act and probably a lot more that we still don't know about, right? Yeah. So yeah, that that's kind of um, yeah like one of the big questions that uh, I've been working on that people in the lab here have been working on. Mm -hmm. So this idea of like regulating it, keeping it keeping it in check, and mm -hmm. so that's where you can you can have a picture of a sort of non-pathological brain, so one that's everything is being nicely balanced, inhibition, exactly, excitatory, yeah. and then using a model, you can say, okay, well, if we change this parameter, is it still in that homeostasis? Yeah. And if it isn't, then that gives you some indication that maybe that's yeah. what, what would lead to a pathological scenario. So did you... Mm. Did you what did, did you find anything interesting there? Or is this <laughs> one of these like, well, we're still, still mm. looking? Yeah. Um, well, in the specific case of epilepsy, like we're still working on that. Mm -hmm. um, but what's very important to know about these, uh, these homeostatic mechanisms is the time scales. So okay. um, a lot of experiments in the past decades that have looked at these homeostatic mechanisms that I just mentioned find that they work on very slow time scales. And um, if you make a model of it, then mm -hmm. suddenly the slow time scale is not sufficient to suppress this activity. So you're like, okay, we need something faster. Okay, okay. Uh, so that, that's the kind of uh, thing that you know, has been found like recently, that we, we need also some faster... So would an example mm -hmm. of a slow method of maintaining homeostasis... Because like, when we're talking about the brain, we can mm -hmm. be talking about you know, hundreds of milliseconds between neurons and stuff firing. So mm -hmm. what is slow? <laughs> what are we, uh, <laughs> what are we yeah, talking? Slow, like hours, days. Okay, yeah, so yeah, this yeah. is sort of like yeah. a long-term yeah. thing that's keeping your brain sort of in this yes. normal range. So, but there's got to be, but when you put that in the model, it's not though. Yeah. It's clearly slow. not the only thing that works. No, no. Uh, there is some evidence also for faster homeostasis in the synapses. Mm -hmm. uh, on a scale of uh, minutes, for example. And um, so, you know, there is definitely a, probably a, a combination, like a whole zoo of these mechanisms acting. Right. But with these, so like mm -hmm. when we're talking about like a, a slow mechanism versus a fast mechanism, mm -hmm. do we know what the mechanism itself is? Is it is it all about, you know, the levels of the different neurotransmitters in the brain? Mm -hmm. Is, or is it, like you said, there's some of these structures that they have on the edges of the cells that they develop? Like, is it, do we know yeah. that? Uh, yeah, so that's a good question. Um, so not everything is really known about how these, these operate, these mechanisms. Um, so there is, so the, the mechanism of fast homeostasis on the synapses um, very likely has something to do with um, the maybe some uh, limitations in resources of um, neurotransmitter, for example, or, okay. or um, uh, limitations in the, the receptors that receive these neurotransmitters in the postsynaptic part of the okay. synapse. So some kind of redistributional limitation is happening there. But the problem is that it's different in different parts of the brain. So some experiments show that you have some kind of normalization in... Uh, the outgoing synapses of a neuron, mm -hmm. so that its outgoing synapses would pretty much sum to some value uh, of a total strength of these synapses, and in, in others it would be the 
the total incoming strength of a neuron is somehow kept constant over time. Right. Um, so it's very hard to say, like, okay, this is exact mechanism happening there. Uh, but it seems to be quite uh, connection dependent. Okay. Yeah. But in what we've been looking at uh, in, uh, in relation to these homostatic mechanisms was the uh, possible role that they could play into shaping distributions of synaptic strengths uh, that have been observed uh, in, the, in the cortex and in the hippocampus. Uh, and one of the very consistent findings is that there are um, v uh, these long-tailed distributions with a peak at some small values uh, of synaptic strength. So that if you look at some part of the, of the, the cortex, for example, and you look at all, uh, how big, for example, these synapses are, how strong, you will consistently find these long-tailed distributions. And this led to the question of, like, so why do we keep finding these? And, and what's the function? And, and so like, when you say like the long-tailed distribution, it's more yeah. or less, it's like um, you, when you look at a certain section of the brain, there's usually the same sort of amount or proportion of synapses that are this big. And this small, yeah. The, like, yeah. We're talking about the sizes and the strengths of them. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. 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 So uh, you you see. So this pattern is yeah. is reoccurring, which makes you think that well, there's got to be something to that. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, well, it could be simply a, a result of some interactive variables that have some function, and the the long tail distribution is just a result of that. Mm -hmm. When we observe, it doesn't mean that uh, it. it it's, it in itself has some important right, function. Right. It could be like a, an a artifact. By, yeah, yeah, a byproduct of you yeah. Know, the other. Yeah, okay. Um, but of course, even a byproduct can be exploited over time through evolution, for example, mm -hmm. uh, to to uh, you know to uh, be helpful in the survival of, of an organism. So it's it's hard to like you know pick apart these these two elements. Um, but it's a nice finding to sort of give you yeah. the trail with which to follow, right? Exactly. And so what's really interesting is that you. So in this long tail distribution, in the tail, you have just a few synapses that are very strong. Mm -hmm. And in the rest of the distribution, you have many, many, many that are very weak. Okay. So you have kind of a rule of the few uh, right. kind of structure there. Um, and this is something that I've, I've looked at in my work. And mm -hmm. I found that if you implement these plasticity rules in synapses, and um, you have some kind of... Uh, distribution of some strong neurons, some weaker neurons, uh, then you can actually obtain uh, a structure in which these neurons that, for example, have higher firing rates, mm -hmm. they also ha collect the resources uh, for the strongest synapses over time due to this plasticity mechanism. Um, so that, that's actually the, so the, the paper that you, uh, you mentioned also that, uh, that you found. Um, I call this uh, the neural oligarchy, so that right. you have some neurons that um, just they have some higher firing rates or they receive more inputs than the other neurons. Um, and if they uh, are allowed to exploit this plasticity mechanism, uh, for example, this spike dimming dependent plasticity mechanism that I spoke mm -hmm. about, then uh, they can get a lot of very strong output synapses by which they can influence the rest of the network. But um, the... Um, the weaker uh, firing neurons, their activity is much lower, so they can't really exploit as well these uh, activity-dependent learning rules, so their synapses remain weak. And so you kind of create a structure of the strongest, most influential neurons in that circuit, and this leads to uh, you know, this kind of long-tail distribution of synapses, by which these strong synapses are properties of these 
highly firing neurons. Right. So the mm. the yeah the the sort of strong ones eventually recruit other strong ones sort of to them, and that's yeah. you, you get yeah. this. They sort of dominate the the circuit or the network. Yeah. So you you can make a step to like network science, for example, where you can uh, where people look at, for example, the the creation of uh, like you know, hubs hubs in the network, like right. very well connected parts of the network that can then also interconnect to create these so-called rich clubs mm -hmm. of uh, you know just to, yeah. It's the club of, of hubs that are interconnected and have a lot of influence on the rest of the network. So this this process, you've seen it in the modeling mm -hmm. data that this is what, and and you you see it in the real brains that this 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 you know. So you you basically your model has showed this is one way in which this clustering of strong neurons might develop in the brain. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. So then, if we have these networks of or these clusters of strong neurons and they're sort of you know they're naturally occurring in the brain there's they're, they're somehow taking advantage of the homeostasis mechanisms or whatever then obviously mm -hmm. the question is yeah well why why has evolution allowed this to go on in the brain like there's obviously some i'm assuming there's some mm -hmm. function some functionality yeah. to having you know a cluster of strong ones and then a bunch of other weak ones yeah yeah, so um, that has actually been done by a former colleague of mine. He looked at, into this um, and he found that you can, if you have such a structure of many weak synapses, a few strong synapses and having this, uh, this kind of structure in a neural circuit, then uh, you can easily get a very precise propagation of sequences in the network, of sequential activity in the network. So uh. you have just, just a few hub neurons that kind of dictate what's going on and the rest kind of are just active enough to kind of support the propagation of the signal, but they won't really contribute to it themselves. So okay. you get like reoccurring patterns happening. And um, another way you can also look at this is that if you have some strongly interconnected neurons that are mostly active at the same time, uh, this, uh, this is termed a neural assembly. Mm -hmm. And neural assembly is kind of a, a theoretical concept that we think might be very important for memory. It might actually be a memory or a... Um, uh, a part of like you know brain activity that uh, guides our cognition. For mm -hmm. example, if you think of an apple, there's some neurons in your brain that are active right now. Right. That um, you know that are active every time you 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 eat an apple or you think of an apple. Um, and these uh, these neurons are very likely interconnected because they are active at the same time. And we know that through the plasticity rules, if they are active around the same time, then these connections will strengthen between each other. Right. So you can get an, a, what they call so a neural assembly happening. Right. Um, so would this yeah. be the same as too, like when you're like learning a task, learning to, to write, or if you're yeah learning a new hobby or something, music or something like mm -hmm. this, you're going to, the ones that are always firing when you're doing that activity will sort of create this, you know, yeah, in a hub of strong ones and then... The other ones, the weak ones around it, are there to just transmit the signal or whatever. Yeah, that's it's not really like super solved yet, but yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that's okay. kind of the, the the theory behind it. Yeah, okay, that, okay. That you just have a, a memory represented by an assembly of neurons, and uh, it, you know that neural neural um, memories would activate different sets of neurons. But we shouldn't think of it as in oh, this neuron is part of this assembly, so it can't be used for any other memories anymore. Um, uh, because uh, if if you look at experiments that, that look at how neurons uh, respond to stimuli in, in, uh, in for example, uh, macaque experiments, uh, that 
a lot of neurons respond to very different stimulations. So that, you know, you could show a picture of an apple, you could show a picture of a boat, and the neuron would still be active. Um, and it makes you think, like, okay, um, probably there exists many overlapping um, cellular assemblies right. uh, that kind of borrow the same neurons over time, depending on, you know, the needs in the moment. And it's completely not clear how, you know, we should then think about neurons. We can't think anymore of the neurons as, you know, this neuron represents this one object or this one right. stimulation or this this one concept that we have. Neuron neurons are much more flexible than that. So right. So this one this one yeah assembly or you know network of strong ones and weak ones is associated with one task, but it might also just be a part of another network that we yes. had that you haven't even identified yet yes so it's almost like if you like zoom out you might mm -hmm. see that what you think is a is a main network we'll say yeah. is actually just a small part of another network yeah so it yeah. just really depends on how you define the the, the limits of your yeah, network yeah. right oh, okay it could be like embedded networks and right right, yeah, right in the in the brain you just don't only have different time scales you also have different spatial scales so you have you know uh, you know, neurons that are interconnected, but you have also groups of neurons that are interconnected between brain areas mm -hmm. and the whole, uh, you know, you know, frontal areas also connected to parietal areas. So you you have these different spatial scales, and on all of these scales you have connections. So you have very long range connections, you have local connections, and uh, you also have, you know, there is also evidence that you know the neurons connect in certain patterns within the network, so that you have a lot of local connections. Um, with nearby neurons, and you have a few connections with you know, neurons that are far away. Um, uh, this kind of network structure is called a small world network, mm -hmm. and it's been looked at in the context of the, you know, the, the cortex and the brain. And the advantage of having such a small world network is that you can uh, propagate a signal through these neurons very quickly. Um, so you can very usually the path from one neuron to another neuron is quite short, mm -hmm. uh, but you only need a few long-range connections to do that. So you don't need so many uh, neuronal resources. You don't need so much, uh, you know, you don't need so much pavement. <laughs> right, right. To um, to which you would need if you were to connect all the neurons to all the neurons. Okay, the path length would be very short, but you know that would be. Uh, impossible to, to still have a, a brain that you could carry in your head, like to right, say that, right, right, right. <laughs> because it would require so many connections and so much insulation for all of these uh, connections. So, um, only you're having a few long-range axons, uh, kind of hypothesized, like, okay, this kind of structure or similar network structure uh, is probably implemented by the brain to make it easy to uh, transmit signals quickly from one neuron to another so it's like uh, it, yeah, the other side of the brain. An yeah, efficiency yeah. thing. Exactly, yeah. Right. So, I mean, this is all, it's just amazing. And I guess this is why, you know, the brain is so good at doing all the things that it does, you know, all the time without us even thinking about it, like maintaining all the things going on yeah. in the body. We can think like, it's just, we, we always think of it as such like an amazing yeah. computer. But so then these, like these networks of things, these networks of neurons, and you're, we're finding, you know, how they're embedded now and all this stuff. It just makes me think so much, I, yeah, as a biologist, it's mm -hmm. like the evolution of these things. Yeah. So do we have any idea or is there any modeling? I mean, I, mm -hmm. stop me if this is like totally out of your field, but of how, you know, this might develop over time. Like if we look at simpler organisms or simpler models of it, is mm -hmm. there sort of a... 
a set condition, I guess, in which these neurons sort of start to do this? Or is it sort of the Wild West and it can change all the time? Um, I, I find it very hard to answer this question. This is a, <laughs> no well, doubt. I don't want to say anything that's like obviously wrong, but... Um, it's okay, you're free, you're <laughs> free to speculate here. Mm, well, obviously the structures that the brain uh, evolves on, they, you know, the brain evolves using structures that arise that have been used by the previous organism. So you get kind of a, a structure built on another structure, built on another structure, mm -hmm. built on another structure. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't grow from scratch at every new organism. Right, right. So this will obviously create some limitations. Oh, because we already have this part, we don't have to make it work with this part. Um, what I can say about it is that this would simply make it hard to understand the brain, um, in particular in the context of how we now use neural networks to, you know, to create artificial intelligence, for example. We think, like, okay, well, maybe we can create this kind of network that would be very efficient. Um, and um, there are things that you know, uh, artificial neural networks, computers, can do much faster than humans. Um, so, you know, we can say like, okay, well, this is so optimal. Uh, and maybe the reason why, you know, uh, the brain doesn't do that because the way it evolved, uh, mm. you know, there are, it's not just lim limitation in, um, uh, in, you know, energy and, and size, weight and, and resources and so on. I think it's also a limitation in what you already have because evolution works that way. Right. Um, and it makes it hard for us to understand like why does the brain do it this way? Why does it solve it this way? Right. Um, because we can construct something that's much more efficient at that task using a recurrent neural network. Might make right. Yeah. I guess that's, a, that's, yeah, that's kind of the thing with any structure that you're looking at through the lens of evolution, it's like it would, it depended on what the goals too were mm -hmm. of that structure at that time. Yeah. You know, clearly the, the organisms that came before us weren't building computers or something, mm -hmm. you know, so their network yeah. at that point wasn't designed for that. Maybe it was simple stimuli as just mm -hmm. light is here, light is not here, yeah. smell something there, go that way, that kind of thing. So I guess it makes sense. So then it brings the question of, you know, understanding all this, modeling all this, and you briefly just mentioned it there, is what is it for AI? That's mm -hmm. another thing that people are really interested in these days. Yes. <laughs> so I don't know if you have thoughts on it or touch on it. Like, is mm -hmm. this kind of, this kind of, it seems like this would lead to, you know, if you understand these networks and how the brain is doing things, like you said, sometimes you can build things that are more efficient than the brain at a certain task. But I guess the goal would be to create something that's as good as the brain at doing all the things that the brain does. Yeah. Yeah, that's something that, you know, we would definitely want to try and make. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, lately I was thinking, like, you know, what is really intelligence? Because we, we define first intelligence based on, you know, you know the human brain. And like, okay, well, I know this person, he's very intelligent. Or we know that the human brain can recognize pictures of cats very quickly yeah. uh, and maybe we can call this intelligence but then uh, we're you know we're making more and more I'm saying we but uh, <laughs> just people in general yeah, yeah, yeah. are creating more and more sophisticated uh, algorithms that can and do more and more tasks that humans can also do and, and, and others that humans are not so good at making very fast calculations for example right. involving uh, many different numbers then um, you would have yeah, I mean, it would be a, it would be a problem then because we would basically base this, we would benchmark it with human brain, 
But then we are maybe creating something that's much more efficient or better than the human brain at more and more aspects, uh, which is only going to get better and better, I think, in the future. And then we would have something then, can we still call the human brain uh, intelligent? Mm. That we have created something that's more intelligent, but how would we judge that? Right. You know? Yeah. Because, yeah, like, is, is, the, is the computer program that's really good at, you know, running the Google search or, like you say, com doing numbers, mm -hmm. is that intelligent compared to, you know, me being able to have a conversation with a number of different people at the same time? Or is yeah. that kind of just, is like, there's yeah. different frames of intelligence. So yeah. if you make something that's super good at all these things... I mean, the natural inclination for me is just that anything that can do something faster than we can do it is more intelligent. <laughs> but, I, you know, yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. It's, it depends on how you define it. Yeah, it, I think this, this definition of intelligence or how we view the word intelligence and the definition is going to change in the coming years mm -hmm. uh, based on, like, both what we understand about the brain, which is, you know, improving over time, but also what is, you know, being developed in, in AI right now. And... Uh, I think it's only a matter of time that we will really start wondering, like, what is intelligence now? And how can we, like, you know, um, test human intelligence? How can we test machine intelligence? Um, yeah, I don't know. This is more like a philosophical argument. But um, I've, been, I've been thinking about that lately. And I'd like to think about, you know, what's next? What happens in the future? Right, right. Will, will the, you know, maybe some super intelligent AI with consciousness will then, you know, benchmark... Uh, us against them or uh, vice versa and um, yeah so it's interesting to think of these things like how how the AI will actually evolve because the thing is that in um, in my lab so you know there are people working on neuroscience but there's also people working on AI, AI. Mm -hmm. so really specifically making um, kind of you know models that a robot could use for example to do a certain task or um, trying to understand uh, uh, curiosity, exploration, uh, so that you know it goes much more, uh, much further than just you know having uh, a computer program solve some specific task. You would have some kind of um, you know uh, independent uh, uh, AI entity, you know, possibly you know put into a robot um, a machine that could maybe move around, and then this this would then. Uh, explore ex environments by itself and uh, find out by itself what is important, what is uh, really relevant in this environment. Maybe it will learn to open a door mm -hmm. uh, because there's a handle there. But how would how would you program, uh, you know, AI to actually select these different parts? Would it right. not would it not just look at anything randomly uh, unless you actually tell it beforehand? Like, okay, well, there's a door right. handle there. Um, then. But that already defeats the, the, the purpose, you know. We know yeah. that human children usually, you know, infants um, explore the environment by just touching things. And uh, so, you know, there's people working on trying to understand uh, this AI from, you know, from this developmental perspective. Like, mm -hmm. how can you actually move around uh, having this kind of AI that learns like a human, that you don't say like, okay, well, you have to, uh, you know, press this button and then press this button next. No, you know, discover by yourself. So right. it's going much further than just uh, solving you know, a specific task. But see, even then, it makes you think that like, it's a, a comp like a computational problem, right? Like, it's mm -hmm. say the robot exploring the room, you would give it, you would still have to have an input in it that's like, you know, rule one, 
Ex, you know, look around. Yeah. Rule two, touch things. Rule three, you know, yeah. touch it in a different way, you know, and like give it these. And I don't know, like, is that sort of, is that innate intelligence that humans have? Like, we that's how we do it. Mm-hmm. So is that the best way to do it? And how can we create something that's more intelligent than us mm-hmm. if we're the ones designing it based on how we do yeah. it? Yeah. Right. Like, so is it because it's, it's not all just a matter of speed, right? Like speed of the circuitry and stuff. Oh. There's there's other things going on. So just that's my, you know, I'm clearly just thinking about this right now and seeing where the train of thought goes. But yeah. how could you create like if we're always yeah. having the input and designing it and giving it its initial parameters, goals, whatever it is, mm-hmm. how does it then become smarter than us? Just is it just speed? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I can't answer it. <laughs> I can only like conjecture, like like you are right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I I think already you know there's been a lot of progress in in, in AI and in, for example deep learning. I'm not saying deep learning equals uh, uh, intelligence or anything like that. But um, once we get to a stage where you know, <laughs> so to speak, uh, the computer can program the computer, uh, mm. then. Uh, I think it's not impossible that we reach uh, the stage of, you know, uh, that we go much further than our own intelligence. Okay. Um, uh, so if we make it smart enough that it can, you know, then re, you know, tweak itself, do something to itself, it, yeah, it could yeah. maybe then see something, some pathway or some connection that we didn't, you know, the, the missing piece that we didn't figure out and then it would then become smarter than us. Yeah, I, I'm thinking along those lines. Yeah, yeah. right, right, so, right, right. Um, of course, you know, we, you know, researchers in robotics right now are mostly human, <laughs> yeah. from what I know. Um, Could be some aliens in there that we don't know about, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's, um, yeah I, I think this will be the path along which they will go, like more autonomy for mm-hmm. the systems, for the artificial intelligence system they're working on. Uh, this is not at all my field, so this is just, right. you know, what I've you know, seen from or heard from my colleagues. But it's, it's nice to see that people from... Uh, like AI robotics themed research are working uh, together and working in the same place as people working on neuroscience right. because we, we can borrow from each other, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you work in AI, you want to find some algorithm that can do something really well. Um, maybe you can, you know, you're out of inspiration. Maybe you can look at how, you know, the brain does certain things or maybe some properties of, uh, you know, living neural circuits and then implement it in your own algorithm. Maybe it will, you know, help or maybe it will make it worse. You don't know that. You can try these things out. And uh, on the other hand, you know, if people in neuroscience want to try and understand the brain and looking at all these experiments and thinking like, yeah, well, it uh, doesn't make sense to me at all. And then maybe look at how artificial intelligence researchers solve certain problems. This can also inspire us. Mm-hmm. So um, I do still see it as two very separate fields, but yeah. there's a lot of potential for exchange and improvement here. Uh, whenever I see a, a talk uh, on uh, artificial intelligence in some some way, I'm always just amazed and like, wow, I never thought of that. And, and <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe we should. Is this happening in the brain? Is it not happening in the brain? Will it happen in the brain? Maybe in the future. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this this is a very important point that I think people should should look at a lot and um, uh, like interdisciplinary exchanges between. AI research or robotics and, and neuroscience are, are very um, 
are very important for the future mm -hmm. development of both these fields i think right they're, they're, yeah. yeah i mean i guess i always kind of thought that you know ai research was you know i had this idea of you know for things like like what you're doing where you're modeling the brain and sort of if we had the, all the compu computational power you could just model all those connections and know what they're doing all the time and then you would basically just have uh, uh, you know, an electric brain, you know, like, or, a, yeah. you know, you could just, if we could just get all that information and sort yeah. it all out computationally, then you could just develop artificial intelligence, like it would live inside the computer or whatever in yeah. that it's all those, you're yeah, just yeah, simulating yeah. all of those connections. But is that really, I mean, say we had all the, is that realistic? <laughs> would that then be an intelligent thing or would it just be a replica yeah. of whatever brain that you, you mapped it on? Yeah, yeah, it's, um, again, you know, it's also just philosophizing about mm -hmm. this now, but... That's, um, that's the fun part. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, the, the, you know, the brain, as you know, it's constantly changing, it's constantly, you know, uh, active in different parts, different neurons are active sequentially, so you would have, if you have that program, you would have the brain at that moment. Right. And you would have to have the same plasticity uh, mechanisms, the same changes happening in those connections that would happen in the in the in the human brain, for example, in the living brain, uh, for it to be the same brain. Right. So if there's just a small change somewhere in one of the connections, uh, like maybe uh, um, maybe you just set like some of these synapses to not change, then already you would have a different brain, right. and it would already be a different entity. Uh, whether this this would really be conscious. I really uh, dare not <laughs> mention anything about that. Um, but I do think that people will try to do this and they will succeed uh, mm -hmm. in, in a pretty near future, I think. Because so. wouldn't, like, let, you know, if you have the sort of hypothetical electrical, you know, brain, whatever, living either, you know, as a machine or in a computer, I mean, the, the biological environment must be playing was clearly playing a role in how the yeah. brain changes as well so just by yeah. not being made of cells or you know not being mm. in a skull with air and different things mm. you know the, everything that we experience yeah yeah would would already change it as well yeah so right. there's a constant uh, there's a constant interplay between the environment and the brain mm -hmm. uh, you know your, your your sensory modalities you know picking up information from the environment so uh, without that I don't think you could have real, um, yeah, like a real like conscious brain uh, mm -hmm. in an AI system. So you, all will depend on how you connect this to the environment. And, right. And like if it lives in a computer, it's not. Yeah, yeah, but also like movement, uh, you know, visual system. I mean, right. the the way that you know the eyes take up you know, visual information from the environment and the uh, the how the the visual cortex processes this information. Uh, this has all been adapted to, you know, the eye, to the to retina. Um, and if you change only a little bit the way these, these sensory um, organs work, I think this would, um, you, well, at least you would probably need a very different uh, structure or cortical structure to, uh, you know, process this well, this mm -hmm. information well. And um, it will probably influence um, consciousness also or like, you know, uh, awareness of this um right of this yeah system. so even yeah. just by like something simple like something you wouldn't think of just by it not having eyes or any of these things it yeah. totally changes the nature of what the brain is and whether it's yeah yeah wow 
I think so. But so, again, yeah, yeah, like if you, if you built it with, yeah. yeah, like say like a camera eye, not a biological retina eye, that would change mm -hmm. the input signal coming in, mm -hmm. the nature of that signal, and then all the changes that are downstream changes would be associated with that. Yes, and, uh, uh, you know, you could, different, uh, different networks, different uh, structures would be more optimal for processing such signals as right. opposed to the, you know, the ordinary retina signal. Right. Um, so yeah, but again, you know, this is really <laughs> <laughs> yeah, far this out is there. really on, on on the yeah, like you know, not not really clear like what's what's going to happen there. Um, even just you know from the simple brain as we have it now, so much is still not understood. Right. Um, before we even try to move it to to uh, you know to upload it somewhere. <laughs> right. In a couple of hard disks, um, uh, we still have so much to understand still, and there's a lot of stuff happening also on the. You know, the cellular level, there's, you know, a lot of stuff um, uh, concerning the, you know, the uh, maintenance of the neuron's membrane, uh, the synapses. Uh, so, as I mentioned before, the lifetimes of, of synaptic uh, molecules. Uh, we really don't know the details so much of everything that's happening there at any moment. Mm -hmm. So, would we need to incorporate this or... Uh, we should definitely have at least some simplified version of it then in this artificial brain right. if we were to have such a thing. Uh, but then to what extent is it important to have everything there? And can you really simplify it? Mm -hmm. um, I think it would be hugely complex. I'm yeah. not saying it's impossible. It will happen at some point in the future. But um, yeah, right now we're not ready to just you know code a brain just yeah. as like a real human brain in, in all of its complexity. There will be definitely a lot of loss of information if we do that now. Right. So, yeah. But you, so you are saying that it will happen one day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think so. Okay. I think it will happen one day. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to hold you accountable to that prediction. Yeah, I, but I might be long gone by yeah. then. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it brings up one other interesting thing uh, for me in my mind is Okay, so we don't know, we can't replicate it perfectly, we can't, you know, we're, we're not there yet. But in terms of, you know, we talked about epilepsy, um, mm -hmm. but even just things like brain injuries or other sort of path, what we would say pathological um, things in the brain, mm -hmm. this sort of information, modeling this, or being able to sort of understand these networks and everything that we've talked about would be a way to fix you know, say brain yeah. injury or, you know, absolutely something like this. Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, one of the, the the things that we've been also working on is uh, is epilepsy in mm -hmm. the brain, and uh, well, I mentioned it before briefly. Um, so, the epilepsy is currently treated in different ways. Um, some um, some patients receive uh, epileptic uh, anti-epileptic drugs, mm -hmm. um, and these work to suppress the seizures in some cases, uh, but there are also types of epilepsy which are drug resistant. Um, so oh. even if you, you take a whole mix of drugs, you will still get seizures. And um, it, there is a lot of uh, demand you know, to, uh, to understand more how these types of epilepsy, uh, you know, how they can um, actually take place, how they affect the patients and how we could potentially treat them in a different way. So a lot of these drug-resistant epilepsy um, cases are simply people who, who suffer a lot from seizures because the drugs don't, don't work in that case, or, they, uh, or the, the affected tissue is resected. So they just remove 
part so of the a brain. Pretty invasive. It's pretty invasive. Yeah, yeah technique. Like, you have brain surgery. We're talking about exactly. Yeah, yeah. This is very serious. So, um, uh, in particular, uh, what's called medial temporal lobe epilepsy. It's kind of happening uh, in or near the hippocampus. These type of epilepsies uh, are often very difficult to treat with drugs. Um, so, we've been trying to to create models actually to understand. Um, you know what what is happening in these types of epilepsy mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. by again creating a simplified model it's only like very in the you know in the still in the early stages right. but to understand um, uh, how could you have the, this process of epilepsy um, taking place on the circuit level like which neuron is active when uh, how to, how does it how does the seizure propagate which neurons are at the origin of the seizure uh, these are all important questions to find out um, if we want to f- find a way to really target these, this disease. Um, so, you know, it's very hard to, to say something inclusive at this stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, for example, uh, there has been a previous work, which we also try to, uh, to adapt uh, ourselves, that looked at exactly these, um, uh, these strongly interconnected networks, these hubs or, or, or interconnected hubs in a neural network uh, that uh, could potentially have an important role in uh, the um, emergence uh, or the creation or the propagation of seizures, such that if, for example, just a random neuron uh, would suddenly um, become a bit overactive due to some changes in the um, membrane um, the composition of the membrane proteins, for example, or it would become uh, uh, yeah just sick, let's just say it becomes sure, sick yeah. and it becomes a bit too overactive. Uh, but nothing much happens to the rest of the network because this neuron has only a few weak synapses and it wasn't even that active before, so it's only a small increase in activity. Uh, then that would not affect the network so much. But if you have a neuron that's already quite um, quite present in a network in sense of activity and mm-hmm. the strength of its outgoing connections and it connect- in a, its connectivity to other strongly active neurons, that could easily lead to overexcitation in the network. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's some kind of you know thinking behind this, like probably these kind of uh, ne- interconnected uh, hubs or um, yeah, some some specific neurons might be actually the 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 causes for these these seizures. But we really don't know yet. We were trying to model this by understanding this. Uh, we're also looking at the role of some you know, types of homeostasis. Mm-hmm. That homeostasis, as I mentioned earlier, can help to suppress activity, but it can also work in a pathological way uh, so that the mechanism is in place, but if maybe some neurons uh, um, in the network uh, uh, die, that you have some remaining connections that suddenly become too strong, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, that homeostasis would do this because it's just the mechanism perhaps is still in place uh, by which this happens, but it would lead to a, a pathological effect. Uh, so there are some you know, theories we're trying to explore here uh, that you know homeostasis is not always doing good it could also maybe play a role in, in epilepsy right um so that's kind of one thing also that we're looking at right now yeah so it'd be like you could also just maybe like if you were had a better idea of how you know it propagated or whatever through the or i'm thinking of those one of those situations like there's these old games when you're a kid or whatever where it's like if you pull one stick out of the whole pile of sticks all the marbles fall out you know there's but Mm -hmm. it's like you can 
the, the idea is that you keep plucking at one thing okay. until the whole thing falls down, but you don't know. Like you're kind of. Yeah, I have no idea what game you're talking about, yeah. but I, I, I okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I see what you're trying to say. Yeah. 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 <laughs> But if you knew, you know, don't touch this one, touch this one, or we know that this one is the cause of it, then you could sort of, you know, turn it off or, or, or attempt to do something like this Yeah. To, to reset the network back into the... Yeah, potentially, maybe, you know, in the future, these more specific uh, subgroups of, of uh, neurons or at least, you know, smaller areas could be targeted, uh, maybe even with gene therapy, mm. uh, that, uh, so that, you know, we don't have to re resect a whole... Like part of the brain, but that we can keep it mm -hmm. and just make sure that the activity of some specific neurons is um, um, is changed in such a way that you reduce the seizures. So you actually you don't suppress the symptoms of epilepsy by just administering drugs, but you try to get at the root cause. Mm -hmm. um, and another thing that's also very important to know is that um, in epilepsy, in development of epilepsy, uh, you often have a case where there is some um, uh, some uh, trauma happening uh, to the patient and then after some delay you would suddenly see seizures but this delay could be weeks could be months and it could even be years hmm. and only after this delay the seizures appear in the in the patient so it, we we want to understand what is happening in this delay period and can we potentially stop epilepsy from developing during this delay oh. if we know what's happening then we could maybe stop it even before it becomes uh, right. like really detrimental to the the patient's life by you know having seizures so um th that's a really hot area right now in epilepsy research um mm -hmm. you know people using both animal models and also r reports from, from patients and recordings from patients so some epilepsy patients have actually uh, some uh, electrodes, like invasive electrodes, for trying to find out the locus uh, of uh, epilepsy, like where epilepsy is, uh, where the seizures are coming from, uh, what is the affected area. So recordings from these patients are also used for uh, neuroscience research sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, so, but this is still not completely not known. We really have no idea right. yet uh, what is happening in this, this latent period, if there even is a latent period, because maybe there are already so many changes happening that you can't stop them, but simply the seizures themselves only appear later. Right. Uh, so if there, but if there's any potential for, you know, um, treating the epilepsy before it actually becomes epilepsy, right. that would be really, uh, really helpful, I think. You'd have to know then too the event that would yeah. cause it, right? So, and that's, probably can be a number of different things yeah. so it adds a whole nother layer yes. of <laughs> yeah, yeah i thought of that as well yeah so well you, you can have cases uh, where for example patients have had a serious accident and then right uh, like if, a head trauma yeah or head something. trauma and if the head trauma is sufficiently serious then um you uh, you know the, the, the um, medical staff will then inform the patients like you know you may be at risk of de developing epilepsy mm. but maybe not Right. It's not in every case, so this right. is again something that uh, has to be taken into account. But um, it, indeed, there are many other causes that could lead to epilepsy. So there's also like a brain inflammation, certain mm -hmm. diseases, uh, meningitis that could right. lead to epilepsy. There's certain tumors, mm -hmm. and uh, the problem, though, uh, in general, in the whole field of epilepsy research, is that if you uh, if you see it like the patients that they have epilepsy, often the seizures, um, they, you know, all, all the patients have seizures, but the way that they develop these seizures 
over time uh, is probably very different because all these causes are different. Right. And then we all call it epilepsy together, but then, you know, this is actually not the same epilepsy. Right, the subtypes of it. Yeah, the subtypes of it. And this is very hard to, to find out because the seizures themselves look very similar in all the patients. Right. Um, okay, so the, the, the periodicity is different. Though, for example, some patients will have seizures maybe um, every day and other people will have seizures maybe once every week or mm -hmm. every few years even. Mm -hmm. So it can be a very long cycle in some cases. Um, but the... Um, the thing is that it, you can you can basically picture it. This this is very uh, well used analogy. Picture it like a river, and in um, you have basically a lot of small rivers, and they all flow into this big river. Mm -hmm. And the the small rivers they all come from different places on the mountain, but at the bottom is a big river, and this big river is like the, the seizures. Okay. So the seizures. Okay, we see them like you know many patients. We see the same seizures or many um, animals, for example, and then you don't really know. What is the exact mechanism that causes this seizure to happen exactly at this time, um, under such circumstances, uh, maybe involving these neurons and not of involving these other cells? Uh, th that is completely still uh, open. And of course, you know, that, that in the human patients, you have non-invasive um, methods that are often used. So you can only find out, you know, something on the surface of the scalp. Um, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things that make it very difficult. But this mm. is like one of the hardest things about epilepsy that we all we call them all epilepsy right. in fact and we know that there are many subtypes um, of epilepsy but even within these subtypes can you really say you know trauma you know in this patient and trauma you know in this other patient maybe they were hit on the head both at approximately the same area but it's not exactly the same area right. we'll never yeah. get that and um, then it's very hard to to say like you know what exactly causes this epilepsy and how right. should you treat this patient so based on you know previous experience uh, of the the medical you know experts the clinical experts they will you know you use their own experience but it's very hard also to to really you know treat this kind of thing so there's a lot of we, we there's so much we still don't know about epilepsy it's crazy when right. i started working on it i thought like uh, okay, yeah, epilepsy. Wow, there's a lot, lot I have to learn about it. And already, very quickly, I hit this this limit of like, what you don't know that, you know? Oh, oh gee. We don't <laughs> even have that answer yeah, yet. Yeah. Exactly. I was quite shocked. Um, so yeah, I think it will be very important to combine both uh, um, research from human patients, uh, from uh, clinical experts, with um, uh, you know. Um, uh, uh, modeling like mm -hmm. things that we are doing and uh, also animal experiments that all come together with this uh, then we can combine these things and really understand like what is epilepsy in um, in all these different cases and and then hopefully treat it better right. than it's treated now yeah so yeah. It's one of those things, I think, again, like when we started the conversation talking about how there's all these different aspects of mm -hmm. neuroscience. I mm -hmm. mean, I think that's a good point that you make where it's like we kind of all have to work together. You can't look at it in isolation because there's so many levels of things that are going on. So exactly. that's really interesting. Um, we've been going for just over an hour. Uh, but if you have a little bit more time, I'd like to ask you one more thing okay then <laughs> um and you, this might this will definitely go more into the maybe more of the philosophical stuff again but go as ahead. we're yeah as we're talking about all this stuff about you know um 
understanding what these networks are and like how they're firing and what the signals that are going through, it just seems like there's so much noise potentially in the data or so much data mm -hmm. trying to decipher that. My idea, my like crazy whatever idea here that I'm having mm -hmm. is again, you can with whether it's EEG or something, you know, you can, you can, could you one day decipher based on, you know, the firings in the brain, what that person is thinking. So maybe like mind reading is kind of a thing, but I've always, I'm kind of thinking more, I'll give you the reason why I'm thinking this, dreams. I think they're, you know, it's super fascinating. We don't really know why people have them. And sometimes I have these really vivid dreams and I want to wake up and I want to be like, oh, if I could only like tell somebody what that was or describe it better what it was. Yeah. But if you could, you know, get all the signals from my brain as I was dreaming and actually turn that into the picture that I was seeing or the memory, I guess, mm -hmm. as well. Like, is that even possible? Again, like if we had like all the computational power or whatever. I think I remember seeing a paper somewhere that actually did something similar to that. I've seen this, but I, then I uh, saw the pictures and I was like, I wasn't totally convinced. It I was, was like, very, it was very still, um, I mean, it's, it's a great effort. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not as sophisticated as what you're suggesting now. Um, so, you know, there, there's obviously been work where people, you know, told, you know, told uh, participants like think of a, uh, think of a fish, for example, and mm -hmm. then record your brain activity. Then sometime later, it's like, okay, think of something and then look at your brain activity again. Say like, okay, well, uh, based on, you know, decoding the information that we just got from your, your, your EG or mm -hmm. activity, for example, uh, we, or your uh, MRI. I'm not, I don't remember exactly what it was, uh, what they recorded, but based on your brain activity, you can say like, okay, you're, you're thinking of a fish. Right. But that, they only had a specific set of things you could choose from, right? right? You can think of these one one out of five objects or, 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 or animals that we tell you. And then, oh yeah, okay, well, you can decode it, but it's not like, you know, we can tell exactly what you're thinking. But in in, in a more, you know, general way, the neural code is still not understood completely. Like, right. the neurons, they are, they're firing, and if they're firing together, you can uh, kind of observe these, these brain waves, these oscillations in the EEG. But we still don't really know what these si signals exactly represent. Right. So you could do this kind of, you know, just broad, you know, like this recording the whole brain and then putting it through like some uh, sport vector machine or some other algorithm and trying to predict like which out of so many categories you actually were thinking of. Right. But then you, you need a lot of data from that one specific person. And right. And then everyone's going to be different. Everyone's going to be different. You have that problem as well. Um, but what I personally find interesting is really just understanding this neural code. Like, what does a spike? Like, what does one spike mean? Right. In, in, in many cases, we still don't know what this really means. Okay, so, you know, it's a signal propagated from one neuron to the next neuron. And uh, as we spoke about before, like, what, one neuron. One neuron may be part of some assembly of neurons at one moment, part of another assembly at other moments. So, you know, <laughs> it's just so complex. Uh, we really want to find this out. And uh, this... this uh, what's really uh, even more like you know comes on top of that uh, is the then the plasticity and the activity interacting because they are both interacting constantly. You have this feedback loop of plasticity mm -hmm. uh, dictating what kind of activity will come next, and then the activity influences the plasticity. Right. So this it's also constantly changing. Yeah. yeah. Right. 
Yeah. I, I would, yeah. I, would, I wish. Tell me what you dreamt last night. <laughs> Maybe I can <laughs> look at your brain activity later. Yeah. But yeah. I'd, yeah. It, it just seemed like, you know, with the modeling stuff, that, that that's it's just such a, a really cool approach to. Because you're really, you know, you're building something that's like what you're seeing and then you're able to sort of interpret that. You know, it's, yeah, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a really interesting approach, I guess, rather than just like getting all the signal and then trying to make sense of it. It's like, well, no, let's build it and then that will make, let us know what, what makes sense or not. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, that was really great. Um, Super. Yeah. So unless there's something else that you got, you really want to, you really want to touch on or anything, I think we can wrap it up. Um, I just want to mention that I developed this uh, uh, online course together with my uh, okay. supervisor, yeah, Professor yeah, yeah. Trisch. And uh, so maybe uh, this course will be put online very shortly. So maybe you could provide the link. Yeah, uh, definitely. You, we can podcast. talk about that after yeah. and I'll put the link out. I'll tweet it out. If you have any yeah, yeah Twitter or something yeah. you want to tell people about, go for it. Yeah, yeah. it's it's just an online course to learn how to program your own neuron um, in the style of these neural circuits that I mentioned before. So you would learn to program your own neuron and you could make it your own network by using these neurons and put plasticity rules in it. And I explain these plasticity rules also as well in this course. And the course is uh, open access, so you don't have to pay anything. So, wow, yeah, great. I, uh, hope it so will it's, help some. It's a whole yeah. interactive program, build your, own, build your own neuron, and it's just available online? Uh, yeah, it will be available online when, the, when you put the link up. And um, uh, yeah, it will be open access on the, yeah, on the website. I'll, I'll tell you about the website later. So, okay, yeah. perfect. But yeah, so if you're interested in making models yourself, models of neurons, models of plasticity in the brain, then I really recommend you you check out this course. Great, that's awesome. That's such a great you know to just do that. Did you just do that in your spare time? I'm just gonna whip up this module and um, let people see it. <laughs> not spare time, no. <laughs> time, yes. Yeah. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Okay, that's really great. We'll definitely put that out there and let people know about that. Um, so yeah, I mean, thanks again. This is a great conversation. Maybe we can do it again sometime when I have yeah. more philosophical questions about the brain that I want <laughs> oh, to tackle. Oh, there's so much we can you know, think and talk about still. But um, thank you very much, uh, Brad. It's been really nice. Uh, it's been a pleasure to discuss these issues with you and these, um, these uh, fronts of the neuroscience research. Mm -hmm. And I hope uh, that you know, we will keep on asking questions about this because there's still so much to be discovered. Definitely, definitely. And like I said, people love, people love learning about their brains. People love hearing these, these crazy things yes. and about AI and all the rest of it. So again, thank you so much. And uh, thank you. yeah, we'll leave her there. All right. Wow, there you have it. What a whirlwind tour through the brain. We'll have to do that again sometime. Uh, I want to thank Florence again for joining me. That was such a super fun conversation. Um, the course that she mentioned uh, online at the end there, uh, as far as we know, it's not up yet. I will keep you posted uh, on the social media channels and in coming episodes as to when that does get posted. So if you are interested in that, stay in touch with me on Twitter, uh, either from the show account at 2 brad for you or my personal account at bvamperdon uh, to get information on that. And if you're a regular listener to the show, then we will update that um, continuously. So don't worry about that missing it then. Um, yeah, I guess other than that, you know, if there's topics that people want to cover, get in touch. 
again either twitter or or instagram even i'm on instagram at bvampiredon at too bad for you it's all the same um because yeah then i can seek out people to to have those discussions so if you are listening if you do want some some specific topic let me know um many thanks to the freak motif they just played a bunch of shows in southern alberta and bc i believe back home in canada for their album release hot plate you can listen to it on spotify um, or you know go to their website we have links to it all on our website at twobradforyou.wordpress.com uh, check it out check them out great band uh, thank you to them as always for letting us use the music uh, and being fans of the show uh, other than that I think that's everything you can check out the Tragically Hip podcast cast of the Unplugged Gems I'm part of that with a couple, number of great guys uh, breaking down hip music if you're in Canada and you're a hip band uh, check that one out It's you can follow it on Twitter at Cast Gems you can get it on iTunes, Stitcher, all that good stuff okay, I think that's it I think that's enough of me promoting all of my things uh, thank you again to Dr. Florence Clayberg it's a real treat uh, and we'll be back next time with more episodes of Conversations or Brad and I having conversations. Until then.